Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Morgan Tillman. Morgan is a partner in Foley's Milwaukee office with a practice focused on corporate and regulatory insurance and reinsurance law. And you may have noted that this conversation goes a little bit long, and it's because it is jam-packed. We start our discussion with Morgan reflecting on growing up in Valparaiso, Indiana, where he shares that he was a self-proclaimed science nerd, spending quite a bit of time involved in his school's science Olympiad. Additionally, Morgan then talks about attending Indiana University for college and Northwestern Pritzker School of Law during the Great Recession. Morgan actually takes us on what I call a Great Recession journey, reflecting on how that 2008-2009 time period and the ensuing years really affected his job search and is an integral part of why it is that he works at Foley Milwaukee to this day. Additionally, Morgan takes the time to explain his practice to us a practice that is corporate and regulatory insurance and reinsurance law, a practice that you don't really hear about when you're in law school. Additionally, Morgan talks about his experience being the first openly LGBTQ attorney in Foley's Milwaukee office. He talks about why he thinks that was, he shares how that has changed since he started, and he just reflects on the growth of the LGBTQ community and the Milwaukee area. And of course, because this is the path in the practice, Morgan provides a ton of great advice to law students and to junior lawyers, including the importance of prioritizing early skill building and training when selecting a law firm. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Morgan. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. We're going to jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. Alexis, thanks so much for having me. So like Alexa said, I'm Morgan Tillman. I'm a partner in the Milwaukee office of Foley and Lardner, where I'm in the insurance and healthcare practice groups. Uh, I focus on advising insurers, reinsurers, agencies on transactional corporate and regulatory matters. I work on reinsurance transactions, and I work at the intersection of healthcare and health insurance. And I'm probably the firm's expert on HMOs and managed healthcare from the payer side. You have mentioned some words like reinsurance that I haven't thought about in a really long time. And we will talk about that. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about why I've ever heard the term before. But before we do, we need to get to how it is and why it is that you can describe yourself as an expert in those things today. So let's start somewhere closer to the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up largely in Valparaiso, Indiana, sort of Northwest Indiana. There used to be a law school there, and that law school was a casualty of the last recession and closed, what, six or eight years ago. And so there are there's a whole universe of lawyers who don't have a law school anymore running around. So I was there from five through high school. So all of my my pre everything before university was there. I went to Indiana University. I stuck around and and paid that sweet in-state tuition and then spent a year working for the Red Cross in Indianapolis doing volunteer program management and disaster relief and then went to law school at Northwestern in Chicago, uh, where I graduated in 2011. Summered at Foley in 2010, uh, the smallest summer ever, and I have been here ever since. We're going to unpack all that a little bit. So going back to growing up in Indiana, if I found Morgan, oh, I don't know, let's say in middle school, what were you into? What sort of kid were you? I was a science geek in middle school. I was absolutely obsessed with science and was on the science Olympiad team. And and that was the thing. What does that mean? Did you travel? Do you travel on the science Olympiad team? Okay. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, so the Science Olympiad is like whatever the Nerd Bowl for Nerd Bowls is. It's like the Super Bowl of Nerds. And it's a national 
middle school and high school competition. They're separate. And and it's regional, state, and national. They, like if you if you win out. And when I was in ninth grade, we were actually the national runner-up science Olympiad team. So I'm I'm number two uh, in science Olympiad once upon a time. But yeah, it's a so a team of twelve or fourteen middle school science nerds competing in two dozen different sort of science-based competitions from build a bridge out of popsicle sticks to hold five cans of soup to identify fossils to you know build a Rube Goldberg machine. I was going to say, I knew you were going to say the word Rube Goldberg. You had to. You had to. It's mandatory. You know, they'll come find me. And if if I don't, and it's the so yeah, that was that was me in middle school, science nerd and band because the popularity contest get doesn't get one until later. So when I start talking about reinsurance at cocktail parties, exactly. What instrument and band? I played the tuba. This is fantastic. A couple things. So with the science Olympiad, I don't think that was offered at the schools I attended. And at first, when you mentioned it, I thought it was more of a like test your knowledge, like quiz bowl sort of thing. But it sounds like it was very experiential, like you're actually building things. So that's really neat, by the way. I just had to comment on that. So there was a lot of quiz, okay, you know, like fact recitation stuff too. And full disclosure, I was the king of the facts part of Science Olympiad. Not quite so much the king of the, the Rube Goldberg machines. Building. This is interesting. And I love hearing about this because as we get, of course, for the people at Foley, it gives us a sense. We're all multidimensional, but also for law students or the the few who are listening to this who are not yet in law school, I like giving people the chance to hear that we, most of us weren't born knowing that we wanted to be lawyers. So I do want to ask you then what next as you, you know, move to high school, then to college, what was the thought process, say, for college? Was science what you thought you'd no. focus on? Ooh, <laughs> no, on. I, I burned out on it in high school and and realized how solitary it was and you know, start to get exposed to what it's like to work in a lab and how asocial or antisocial that is. And, and that's not me at all. And I actually wound up in, in undergrad majoring in English and economics and German. This was a triple major with limited math and no science and thought at the time I really wanted to be a professor. So the pendulum really did swing in the opposite. You really did burn out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've done law longer than I've done any of these other things at this point. And at that point you're thinking professor of English what? literature. Yeah, I, mean, no, and I know this is like a Couple nineteen it. or tw- yeah, like a twenty-year-old's best guess, but still, it's interesting. Yeah, and that's even more solitary, except for the teaching part. Yeah, that's true. Perhaps than science is. You might work in a lab with other people. You definitely don't write a book with other people, and so, so it 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 was again this this thing that was really attractive, but not at all compatible with how I motivate myself and how I like where my energy comes from. And so I did eventually figure that out, I guess. Here I am. Yeah. I, I you're telling me you're an extrovert. You're telling me the you, you get energy from others and it, people. Yeah. But I was really intellectually interested in things that you do by yourself. And the law is kind of some of both. Like the intellectual stimulation is kind of that. You know, it's it's you and the law, or you and the book, or you and the agreement. But there's always people involved, and so it's an it's there's it's a really introverted profession. I feel like the loudest person at every Foley gathering, and and like the person most likely to leave after the event has ended because I'm yakking. But there is this like constant interaction with people. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to talk more about that. Yeah. But I want to know also why German? Where did the focus on German come from? <laughs> I started German in fifth grade because it was the, the sort of best language program in the school district I was at. And it was the best faculty. And, and I was like, well, I, I have to study some foreign language. And I wanted to study something where the like the quality of instruction was good and like the teachers were cool. And there our Spanish and French and Japanese was always a mess. Yeah. And the German so program was stable. 
So, And so did you study German throughout, like up through high school? I did. And all through college, I spent a year abroad in Germany in college. And not even jokingly, I tell people it's the only thing I use at work at Foley. Really? Okay. Now we're going to tell, tell me why that is. We, I, have to, <laughs> I have to know. I have to know that. So without you know, like without naming client names or exposing any, with a lot of clients based in Germany at this law firm, and in the reinsurance world particularly, it's the insurance stuff. Yep, the German insurance and auto parts the are the market. two like the two things. Foley is big in where Germans are big, and we, I tra- you know, I find myself translating agreements and emails, and being polite to clients who are German in German before we switch to English, which is the language of business, even in Germany. But it's a way to be polite and to acknowledge their who they are and, yeah. and to not insist that like this is America, speak mm-hmm. English or something crazy like that. Did you have to brush up on any of the like technical, like legal German terms? Okay. So I always get asked, so are you fluent in German? And I think that's a really contextual question. If I'm out at a bar and I meet someone, yes. Do you like have a conversation about normal human things? Yes. If you want to talk about literary theory, yes. But if you want to talk about reinsurance, I am right there with the dictionary trying to keep up. Which makes a ton of sense. And it's just funny because I've heard people cautioned many times when you put, say, on your resume that you're fluent in something, when you are trying to apply that fluency in a professional context or a legal context, that would mean, do you, can you talk about it at the law firm? And so it's because it sounds like you have a pretty solid mastery of German, but even you're like, no, for these really hyper specific things, I have to look them up. Check my bio. I'm proficient. There you go. In German, not fluent in German. <laughs> Somebody listening, particularly a law student, has just learned that they're going to write proficient instead of fluent for certain languages. I think for any for any language, unless you actually know that most Americans are not fluent in legal English. That's right. It's debatable whether most Americans are fluent in any English. But when you, yeah, if it's a skill on my resume, I want to under-promise and over-deliver, not overpromise and underdeliver on on my ability. Yep. Nope. That's really key. Okay, but I'm going to go back to your path. So we talked about what you focused on in college. You've already told us that you did take a year off between college and law school, but break that down for me a bit more. So you graduate from college and then what? How does Red Cross? Yeah. In 2007, so the economy is terrible and and I want to doing an AmeriCorps VISTA year at the American Red Cross of Greater Indianapolis. And so I was able to land that job in part because there was federal funding to support my payment. And all of the private sector jobs that were available to people who were with degrees in multiple languages drying up, that was a real opportunity to get into a significant organ a significantly sized organization with a real operation and yeah so i spent a year there well and you're about to take us on a little bit of a great recession journey um we (laughs) we might touch on this some more because sure 2007 wasn't great but as i recall 2008 and 2009 really weren't great um and that's lehman brothers collapsed on my fourth day of law school and it was the Northwestern Law has this big, beautiful atrium in the middle of the the school with buildings on both sides. And it was totally the sort of energy hub. I think it still is the energy hub of the law school for better and for worse. And so like that Monday after the weekend, Lehman Brothers went down. It was like a funeral in, in the law school because, you know, two thirds of the people there are not one else. And so they're either headed to a summer clerkship or they're they're returning from one. And I think they have a better sense, frankly, than I did of what this might mean. And it was not good. But yeah. The- and at, at that time, I was a first or second year associate. And I can't remember. Was it 2008 or 2009 when that happened? 2008. It's 2008. And 
Lehman Brothers and a bunch of other things occurred that were Bear not Stearns, great. Yeah. Lehman Brothers, you yep. know, breaking breaking the dollar on the money market funds. Yeah. And so this is why, even though as everyone who listens to this knows I do not practice, I will often refer to myself as being that PTSD Great Recession class because we started right as the bottom fell out. And we also above the law for the you know people who check that out, above the law. I think maybe started a year before. So like I kind of grew up in legal with above the law also growing up and everybody was checking above the law over those coming weeks and months for all the announcements about, about what was going on at the various law firms and layoffs. And I just, I vividly remember one sitting down with my husband and being like, so if I didn't have a job, like what do we do? Could we afford where we live? And then also thinking, oh my gosh, I have, like I have no work experience. I think I had four months because I actually started law school or I started my job a bit early because I graduated from law school a bit earlier. And I was like, nobody would hire me because I don't know how to do anything. And it was this whole calculation of like, what do you do if the worst happens? And that brings me back. And there's a healthy paranoia that has stuck with me ever since, even though fortunately I was not affected. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But before we, because I think more, particularly like you already alluded to, you had a really small summer class, which is a result of that whole time period. But we may touch more on that. But what for you was the motivation? I know you said ultimately like law really fits you, but were you, was it before AmeriCorps or during AmeriCorps that you knew law school was your next step? I sort of figured that out in undergrad. Mm, okay. So as like a junior and senior in college, I was looking that direction and and I don't honestly I'm not sure that there was a really big plan behind go to it you know go do this year and then go to law school my real plan if you had asked in 2006 before everything went sideways would have been go work in business for a couple of years have the option to do business school or law school and figure that out down the road, but to go into that with, with the experience of having been in the real world. But as you've already said, plans changed based on <laughs> job prospects. Then all the jobs went away except the one, and which was great, uh, honestly. But it was a f- terrific experience, and I would do it again. But uh, but it certainly wasn't the plan. During that year, took the LSAT applied to law schools and and did the whole thing while working sometimes more than a 40 hour week you know the the disaster response stuff drove really big week you know large law firm sized hours of wow. you know in a week that gives you some perspective it sounds like it had some large law firm sized hours and you certainly weren't making you know large law firm <laughs> compensation while doing that so no no <laughs> Whatever the opposite of large law firm compensation is, that's <laughs> what I was getting. opposite, while still getting paid a little something. So you started at Northwestern, and we've touched a little bit on what the probably, you know, some level of the that experience was like for you, given that the bottom starts really falling out of the economy when you first start. But otherwise, what was the law school experience like for you? What are your thoughts on it? You know, despite it having been a really challenging time economically, it was a really chill experience. Like the law school experience at Northwestern in particular, when I was there, was, you know, the opposite of the paper chase, which was filmed at Northwestern, not at Harvard. Was it really? I'm I'm laughing. A, I'm laughing because we just I had a class in that room. I did not know that. The I think in terms of production, it's going to be the episode right before this one with Anna Romes where we mentioned the paper chase. Cause she was like, I didn't read that book or watch that movie that anyone was supposed to watch. I was like, Oh, I think it's the paper chase. And I think the book is one L. So that was filmed at Northwestern. Uh, so at least big chunks of it, where there's like, they're in a big lecture hall and the Socratic method gets deployed. That's actually a lecture hall at Northwestern. So for those who don't know what the paper chase is, the movie or the, the book, how did you find this podcast? Right. One, how'd you find the <laughs> podcast? But, but two, it's essentially at least maybe it still is, or at least it was, it was like that obligatory uh, reading or watching for someone who wanted to go to lo- to be a lawyer because everyone was like, you have to read it you, or you have to watch the movie because that's what law school is going to be like. And as you just said, Morgan, it wasn't this, uh, what highly traumatic with scary professors asking you to read hundreds and hundreds of pages. No, there's some of that. For every class. <laughs> but the, 
what I was warned about and and saw in books and movies and you name it was not only that the professors would be intimidating and there'd be too much reading, and some of that's true, but also that there would be this really heated competition driven by curves and everybody's need to get the best job. And I honestly don't think that it had anything to do with the economy. You know, I think that Northwestern was like this good culture. before and is there like this after, maybe even today. But the challenge of law school made people more collaborative and more friendly and more like on a team. And it didn't go Lord of the Flies. Yes. It went the opposite. Which is something law students do hear about, right? Because, you know, back before when we all would have had to be in the law library, which, you know, some years ago, it was like somebody stole the key book that everybody needs for legal writing or ripped the pages out. And I I also did not have that experience at Michigan, but also I think I was maybe one of the last law school classes that spent a little bit of time in the library in terms of actually like doing the research in books. I don't, I assume students aren't doing a lot of that anymore. I hope not. I still do it now at Foley. I open physical books. Yeah. When doing legal research, are you using like the key number system or whatever the... Um... Um, no, <laughs> but I I do regularly look at the annotated Wisconsin statutes, which that makes sense. are available on paper or much easier on paper than they are online. And there's a whole universe of insurance regulatory materials that are not digital. Interesting. To this day. Um, and so we are... We actually, in in the insurance practice, we use paper resources, uh, I think, probably more than anyone else in the firm. I was unaware. Do you end up just, I say just to minimize it, but I'm assuming you then get the updated versions of whatever the key. Right. Well, this would, yeah. it, new versions come out every year on paper, and we're getting them, and so are, so is industry, where it's it's largely industry resources that we we need to manage and be familiar with. And that has been a real challenge for the last year mm-hmm. when folks have not been in the office. And we actually, the day before everyone had to stop going into the office, the associates in the Milwaukee office insurance practice and I divvied up the stuff and we all took some of it home and said, well, if we if you really need it, call the person who's got it and we can scan or we can We'll make it work. Wow. Well, we're going to talk more about this because we will be doing, I mean, we don't have time to do a super deep dive into insurance, but we're going to talk more about your day-to-day practice. I do want to get you to get through law school and find out how it is that Foley got on your radar. Are there any other reflections from the law school experience worth sharing before you tell us about how Foley, why Foley? You know, it, you'll detect a theme here. I went to Northwestern because of the top tier law schools. I had the lowest total cost of attendance at Northwestern, right? You went to Michigan. If it had been cheaper for me to go to Michigan, I would have gone to Michigan or NYU or you know. wherever. Yeah. I And 10 years of practice later, I'm really happy I went to Northwestern. I think I would say the same thing had I gone anywhere else. I certainly don't think that you can tell the difference between a lawyer who went to one fancy law school or another, or frankly, that you can tell the difference between a lawyer who went to a very fancy law school or maybe not such a fancy law school, once, if you get into the practice at a place where you can learn, that show, it all drops away. But I am really close with a number of people I was in law school with, and not even people from my section, but just people that I met while I was there. And some of them are clients now, uh, but all of them are like mental health resources and people who have been there and done that and actually of my of my like close law school friends i'm the only person left at a big law firm i'm certainly the only person left at the same big law firm i started at which is there's the segue to foley right yes well and you just said so many things that the commentary on you know after you get out of law school you you, you learn things in law school but in many ways a lawyer is a lawyer i think the difference now is yeah i get different emails from the alumni association than you do Yours are from, you know, yours are from Northwestern, mine are from Michigan. But but also what you did say about building your network, both personally and professionally, so much of that happens in law school, whether or not you realize it. I'm actually talking to some law students tomorrow about building your network and professional relationships. And I think it can be easy to not realize while you're there that your peers, like you just said, 
some of these folks, depending on what you you end up doing, could be your clients one day. And hopefully many of them are close friends and, you know, mental health resources, as you also mentioned. And if you're, if you're in law school, this is my endorsement of Bar Review and of the softball team and whatever other, whatever it is you want to do that's out there. Don't think of it as taking away from legal education or your the path to being a lawyer. It's That's part of the path to being a lawyer. That is so key. I might take that, by the way. Um, tomorrow when I talk to the law students. I may or may not quote you or cite you, but I'll be sh- I'll be sharing that advice. And a few other people on the podcast have mentioned the importance of taking advantage of everything, even you know, beyond just focusing on study, study, study. But I love the way the way you describe that. That is also a part of it. It's a part of your network, part of your relationship building. It's also really key. That is that is some sage advice right there, Morgan. <laughs> and business schools are way better at this than law schools at making it clear to everyone that there's this that you need to go to the happy hour and you need to go on the ski trip and you need to spend the time building the relationships and maybe it's not true if you're in law school because you want to be a judge or you want to be a a legal academic maybe then you really do need to spend all of your time you know hitting the books and and networking in a more professional way but if you want to practice law for money like you want to do what we do here at Foley it's not enough to be really smart. Everyone is really smart. You need people to trust you and to like you and to say, I'm going to send my business to those people. Mm-hmm. All I can do is nod along as you say all of that. There's no time like law school to learn that. Yep. That's your foundation. Do it. Do what Morgan just said. But I often in these, you know, our virtual environment, I'll point. And so for the listeners, I can see Morgan and I'm just wanting to point and be like, do what he said, do what he said. So you've mentioned Foley and I think you've already indicated some things about the firm and the culture and that, you know, we've kept you through, you know, just recently being promoted to partner. But tell me about how you ended up working at Foley. How did that come to be? So so if you if you aren't in law school yet, you might not know what Vault is. But if you are, I'm certain you do. And Alexis is nodding, which you can't see. But Vault is a like elevated gossip and ranking operation that dis- that purports to collect sort of associates' evaluations of their law firm and to compile that into usable information for law students about what it, like what what the differences are among various medium and large law firms as employers. And when you are an associate at, a, at any law firm that's in the vault rankings, and Foley certainly is, you get an email once a year where you get many emails from many people telling you to fill out the vault survey. And the vault survey is pages and pages, and they ask lots of different questions. And they, they always ask, and there's a recession era law student question there, you know, why did you choose the firm that you were at? And I was reminded for nine years by vault of this story. There is an option, and I call it the 2009 option, to check it's the only offer I got. And Foley and Lerner in Milwaukee was the only summer offer I got after a whole round of on-campus interviewing, of going to Lavender Law and doing the career fair there, of all of the networking and all of the connections that I tried to make. I got one summer position offer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Foley and Lardner. And I have told people for a decade since then, you only need one job offer and you certainly only want one big law firm job. Two would be too many. And I I have no idea why Foley and why Milwaukee, but it's been a, a deeply serendipitous thing. It's been a good thing for a decade now. But I I came to Foley because they would have me. And I I prefaced this. I said you were going to take us on a great recession journey, and you have, because I'm certain your experience was was due to the fact that by the time you were summering, so that would have been, was it summer 2010? Yep. So I don't really think things had turned a corner the way that some may have thought that they hadn't in 2010. It was, we're still very much in the recession. There had just been layoffs at Foley, and it was a very weird time to come in and be like, I'm here, yep. ready to be the new intern. Yep. We had not. So we hadn't turned a corner. Summer no. classes were very small. And then just for context, for those who don't know, so 
I graduated from law school three years before you. I'm class of 08. I graduated December 07. I get lumped in with 08. I was the su- the last summer class where it was like, oh, did we tell you the summer compensation would be X? That's actually increased. And we owe you back pay. And I was one of 80 summer associates in my office, right? Not in the across, in the, like, I can't stress for people because it has rebounded some, but I would say it's not back to that pre-Great Recession heyday. That year at Foley in Milwaukee, your year, there were 51 summer associates. There were seven my year. Yes. So that and is we've rebounded context. to 20. We've mm-hmm. rebounded to 20, but not to 50. Yep. That is some context. And so I just think it's helpful for people to hear because, you know, like we're in strange economic times now. A lot of negative things have happened. Large law firms have not, at least so far, you know, knock on wood, been impacted the way that, you know, the industry was impacted with the Great Recession. So I think that context is helpful for people who haven't. And then we've also had some attorneys from Folion who also talk about what happened during the dot-com boom during 2001, who saw 2001 and then 2008, 2009, and now this. But kind of whatever happens, there are times where there there's just large economic dips, and it's about every 10 years. Like, And listening at home, it's important to know that for us to have those people on the podcast, they kept working here. Yes. They, you know, that it isn't as if the, the firm empties out every time the economy is bad, both because there are practices that are counter-cyclical, we say. Yep, yep. And, and I actually came into one of them, believe it or not, when I started. And and we have a, all we have, and I can say this as a partner now, that the value of the law firm is the human capital inside of it. it that the people who know how to work together and who know the Foley way of doing things, that's all we have as a you know, $900 million business is that. And so to to cut expenses by cutting people is, in my view, and I think also in the view of management of this firm and most other law firms, is crazy. That the last thing that you want to see walk out the door the law is the lawyers, because that's that's the product. Yes. Well, and I know you mentioned having joined the firm after Foley did after, I mean, what was effectively a, probably a year and a half of doing everything the firm could not to have any sort of reductions in headcount. I, I know the firm did make a very, very small one compared to the size of the firm and very, very, very small compared to many of our peers because this and is- very late. And very late because this is a firm that will go through every mechanism it can before it has to affect- its employees. And we've actually seen that also within the pandemic in that, you know, fortunately we work for a well-run law firm that did not, and, you know, not to say that others aren't, but that that they didn't have to affect anybody's compensation while navigating the, the pandemic. So it's just, it's interesting because, you know, it, it, I think once someone works at Foley, the care for the people here is, is almost palpable in the way the, the firm runs everything, which I just think is important to highlight for, because the Foley walks the walk, I guess I should say, when it comes to the core values of of people. Yeah. And Alexis mentioned above the law once upon a time, and above the law is still a thing, but there aren't comments anymore. So there's no reason to read it. Oh, the comments. I missed the above the law comments. <laughs> Got about those. And I'm there's a small group of Foley people and Foley alums who have above the law nicknames. And I have an above-the-law nickname. And if it, Alexis is laughing, she's trying to be quiet about it. But, I am. <laughs> but if you read Above the Law a long time ago, before the Great Recession, right? Before 2008, Above the Law was this funny gossip blog about summer program silliness. Yes. And be, like partners behaving badly. And so they used to publish – it was – really gossipy and it was there was no career advice on above the law and there was no they didn't have a recruiting section you were taking me back you're saying they, it was back. it was like xoxo gossip david uh when david latt was writing it by himself so I, yeah i got an above the law nickname in law school and and they were in all caps and it was because they were trying to protect the innocent or the the sort of people who are who are caught up in whatever gossip they're reporting on, but who didn't actually do anything wrong, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not the only one, but there there are only, I think, a handful of us 
Foley and Foley alums. Who That's amazing. You really took me back. I did enjoy the comments as well. And I do remember what they decided. I think first they decided to hide them. So you had to actively choose to read them. And then they got rid of them because there were times where the comments were vicious. Just lots was happening there. Always vicious. But there were like some characters. It was yes, very old were. internet. Yes, there was. Like, like a, internet 1.0. Like commenters, a, chat, a chat forum. <laughs> commenters who who were regulars and you could count on it's because you'd be like i wonder what old man lawyer is gonna say like whatever yeah, the handle was yeah and i was never an above the law commenter but i was a regular reader i think anyone who said anyone who was in law school in 2009 and says they didn't read above the law is lying there's yes, just there are right. no such people right. Well, what I I have come to learn is that law students these days, I'm sure they use Above the Law as a resource. I'm sure they use Vault. But Reddit, Reddit is happening. That's where a lot of the action is happening, apparently. I believe that. But that's just where TLS went. Do you remember that? Top law schools? Oh, no. Well, like it brings a bell, but I didn't. Yeah, Yeah, that was was like where people went to feel like they were getting the inside story and like advice. And there was a group of people when I started at Northwestern who had met on TLS, which I did not, which I never participated in. And they already knew each other. And they were like having bar nights the first night of orientation because they had been internet friends for a long time. And I was like, well, I had a day job before law school and sometimes a nights and weekends job. And I wasn't reading top law schools, but it was the it was an old school wow, like, I forum. Wow, I you didn't miss out. You missed. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, okay. So take me back to your seven-person summer associate class. You're at Foley. The firm was yeah. wise enough to extend you an offer in Milwaukee. And I don't know if it's worth because you've been at Foley for a long time. So I have to be careful. We can't walk through the, the the whole ten years. But is that where the seeds were planted for doing insurance work, or how did that they were. come they to were. be? Okay. So I I came in knowing I wanted to do not litigation. Right beyond that, I was pretty agnostic, and I was the only person brave or foolhardy enough to have taken that position. There was this like universal view at the law school and on the you know on above the law and TLS and even in the career office, like uh, why don't you think about litigation? Because right now everyone is suing everyone, but they aren't doing a lot of deals. Yeah. Or if you don't think of litigation, just be open to any job they're willing to give you. Are you sure you want to have a preference was probably the other question. <laughs> yeah. And I I said, well, I don't want to pursue a job that will make me miserable and that I will, as a result, be bad at. And litigation has a different style of conflict than the corporate work that I do. And it's fine. I have clients who have lots of litigation, and I'm happy that they can come to Foley to get that work done. But I'm also really happy I don't have to do it. So I was the only person in my seven-person summer class who was focused on being like a business lawyer and not a bankruptcy lawyer or a litigator or a patent lawyer, right? Those patent lawyers is a totally separate universe. That's right. And I don't understand anything about it. That's right. <laughs> well, and the bankruptcy is interesting. You avoided that because that you we're talking about groups that were counter-cyclical. There you go. Okay. So I was my project coordinator. And there's, I think at every law firm, but certainly at Foley, there's an enormous cast of people who play one role or another in the summer program. And one of the central characters of its associates and senior counsel who are asked to basically supervise the work of summer associates. And because there were only eight of us or six of us, plus there was really, there was really enough work to go around. We did substantive stuff, uh, but my project coordinator was a senior counsel in the insurance practice group, who's no longer with the firm, but he was at the time. And so he snuck a couple of his own projects in for me while I was a summer, but he was then never around because he and another one of the partners in the practice were in New York. They basically moved into the Midtown Hilton and worked at at the law firm formerly known as Dewey and LaBeouf on an enormous insurance company insolvency proceeding. And they were there for two and a half years, just nonstop. And I wound up 
getting pulled into the insurance group because they needed people Help there. urgently. Yep. yep. Because they had this huge thing going on that was that bubbled away aggressively while while lots of practices were slow. And and they needed someone to kind of do everything else in addition to that. And so here's another recession adventure. Uh, my summer class folks were deferred, where normally you would start in the fall after graduation. We were all set to start in February. And I was undeferred on very short notice, a phone call from the hiring partner saying, you know, like, can you start on Monday? And I was not yet in Milwaukee. So I said, well, not this Monday, but I can be there soon. And I wound up starting on Halloween, October 31st, 2011, in the insurance practice as as the new kid on the block. And I have been there ever since. I've said this before, but yeah, you're definitely jogging my memory because this is why I did a little bit of bankruptcy as a new litigation associate because in that time period, bankruptcy is what there was to do. And when there's restructuring proceedings, there's adversary proceedings, which run a lot like little trials. So they would pull litigators in because, hey, litigators, you have the time. <laughs> come do come do this. It's a similar skill set. It's a little different. But yeah, definitely touch that. And then subsequently, I did quite a bit, not so much related to the recession anymore, but once things settled down, I did quite a bit of litigation related to or over broker malpractice, insurance broker malpractice, which is why some of the words you've said are familiar to me, although I was on the litigation side of that. But now tell me, okay, we've said a lot of words about insurance, reinsurance. Tell me more about the ins and outs of your day-to-day practice. You said a lot of things, but tell me more detail about it. It's got four pieces, right? So I have an insurance company M&A practice, buy and sell insurance companies, life insurance, health insurance, property and casualty insurance, you name it, have bought and sold. I've been fortunate to do more buying than selling, which uh, which when you have the rest of my practices is great because companies you buy are future clients. Companies you sell aren't clients anymore because now they have a new owner with a new lawyer. There are some specialized features of insurance company M&A, mostly the regulatory regime governing insurance companies, but it is otherwise a full-service standard M&A practice. practice, Stock purchase agreements, mergers, asset deals, you name it. We do that work from beginning to end in the insurance practice. Our limit is public company transactions, and that's where we go, okay, it's time to bring in a securities lawyer uh, to Mm -hmm. work on these teams. So the second piece is regulatory work, so state regulatory work. Insurance is regulated at the state level much more than at the federal level. And so I deal with state bureaucrats on behalf of insurance companies, reinsurers, agents and brokers, you name it. A big piece of an insurance company transaction, so an M&A transaction, is getting approval from the state regulators who have jurisdiction over the insurance company being sold for the transaction to actually close. So getting that approval is a dark art of lawyering. <laughs> we file a f- what's called a Form A, and the Form A process is uh, is a dark art. It's minimally l- sort of restricted by the law relative to most you know, insurance regulation. Is pretty there isn't an enormous rule book, and there aren't hundreds and thousands of pages of statutes. It's pretty slim, and it's pretty the the state regulators have pretty broad discretion to say, I like this and I don't like that. And I allow the things I like and I don't allow the things I don't like. In Wisconsin, we call it great weight deference, that they, the, the regulator gets great weight deference. Mm, yep, that's the sta- yeah, there's a standard. Yep. Which is the highest, sta- that's the most deference you can get as the state. And so they have really broad leeway to say yes or no to things. And so interacting with them is a special, there's a special way of doing it. And it is- A particular set of skills. The opposite, <laughs> the opposite of what people think of when they think of lawyers. Mm. I call it strategic groveling. Mm. You don't confront, you don't demand, you don't tell people what's going to happen. You work quietly and you, you're deferential and respectful and you, it's relationship building. So it's really the opposite. It's, it's the anti-litigation. You're in an adversarial proceeding. There's going to be a hearing with a hearing officer but you have worked it out in advance 
in the most friendly possible way with the regulator. And so, so it's sort of a strategic groveling. The third, the third piece of, of what I do is, is reinsurance. And reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies. And it, it allows risks to get spread more broadly than they would in a single insurance company. Any more than that, and I will put everyone listening to this podcast to sleep. It's some complex stuff. I've looked at those reinsurance maps, and I'm like, I, I don't understand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> reinsurance is a conversation killer in a bar full of lawyers at a large law firm. You know, like, <laughs> I don't understand that. I don't believe it's real. Please stop. So <laughs> so you, you talk about it in, com- in, in reinsurance company only. But reinsurance agreements tend to be very high dollar transactions the the value of an agreement like a single contract is can be just astonishingly large you know hundreds of millions of dollars over 20 30 40 plus years governed by a 15 page agreement and so the words are really important and i represent both reinsurers and insurers in negotiating reinsurance agreements and setting up reinsurance facilities to to enable business growth and diversification and to, to protect against the risks that insurance companies face from concentration of risk in their own books of business. And then the fourth and final piece of my practice is the health insurance and healthcare practice. And we, I talk about it as a convergence where it used to 10 or 20 years ago, there was a much clearer line between the people who paid for healthcare and the people who delivered healthcare, right? You had insurance companies and the government paying for healthcare, and you had hospitals and doctors delivering healthcare. And that couldn't be less true today, that insurance companies own hospitals, hospitals own insurance companies, the government is contracting with all all four of those groups in new and interesting ways. There are a lot of vendors and a lot of service providers in the space between healthcare and insurance. And that's really the, the core of my practice more than anything else. And it's the thing that I do that 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 nobody else at Foley does the way I do is this in uh, insurance and healthcare convergence situation. So that's the wow. That's a it's interesting because as you said, you it's a in some ways a broad set of skills, but also highly specialized to particular industries. But I loved the way you described that. I'm certain you've described it many times before. I've been to a cocktail party. It's true. You've been to a cocktail party or two, you know, back before back when we were allowed to do that. But what I think is interesting also is I think you're the first insurance. Per, like attorney at Foley that I've had on the podcast. I've had plenty of litigators. I've had a number of, you know, transactional, but the way you are highlighting, particularly the regulatory scheme behind insurance, this is a hint, hint for law students listening who one day interview with anybody in this industry, but understanding that it's state regulated, I think is really interesting and important. It's why on the flip side, when the litigators come in to litigate over insurance, it's why we find ourselves in places like, oh, I don't know, me being in Tennessee state court for something, it's because it was an insurance matter. But it, it really is different and the skills you need to learn for the different jurisdictions and different states. And as you already talked about before, navigating those regulatory schemes back to the books you were talking about it is a whole nother layer uh, of specialty upon, you know, that say, quote unquote, basic skills of basic M&A or something like that. And even the corporate law is is not, right? So you'll hear in law school, in a business associations or an M&A class, like, oh, you need to know Delaware law, right? You're going to be an M&A lawyer. Get, you got to learn the Delaware law. And I heard that in law school. And I, you know, certainly what we talked about in class and then I got to Foley and I started doing this state level insurance work and insurance companies are not all Delaware corporations. Most of them aren't. They're organized in all 50 states under the corporate law of all 50 states. And so I've done you know, mergers under Arizona law and Wisconsin law and Ohio law. And you know, I've done them under Delaware law too, but but there's this whole universe 
of underdeveloped corporate law relative to Delaware, where you have to practice in my in my line of work, and where you can't just say, oh, well, the Chancery Court says it's this way, so we know what to do and we know how to manage risk. There's a little bit more uncertainty because there's so much less corporate law, corporate common law in every other state besides Delaware, that that there are legitimate gray areas in Arizona corporate law that, that you say, well, I know the answer in Delaware, but I don't know the answer in Arizona and neither does anyone else. Yeah, you've said some words that make the former practicing lawyer me uncomfortable, like ambiguity and not being able to just say like, hey, hey, judge, you did this before with this other thing. Do it, do the same thing here. These are tougher issues to navigate. (laughs) (laughs) Different issues to navigate, right? Different, with a different tact to navigating them, it sounds like. A lot of gray and a lot of judgment calls getting made in insurance regulation that aren't that it's not the same if you're looking at you know what does the SEC rule or what's the common law in a particular state say about damages you probably find a case on point we just don't there there are very few cases very few people sue the state regulator it's not a winning choice when you sue the state regulator you've lost already in my world and so it is there isn't a lot of the sorts of things that you are led by law school to believe will be there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot you've learned over the last the last decade. And I feel so bad because I think there's probably like good 10 questions I should ask you and follow up about your practice. But I'm not going to because I have a few other things I want to ask you as we wrap up our time. The first is, and you said this before, when you look at a lot of your colleagues or your, your former peers in law school, your friends, you're one of the few who's still at the same firm that you went to after graduation. Do you have any just general comments on why that is? Like what it is about Foley that is, has kept you here? I don't want to oversell what it is about Foley, right? There's, I think at any big law firm, you have to be lucky and you have to be a, a serious advocate for yourself and you have to be lucky again, right? That, and and you have to take advantage of that luck. It isn't as if you're like, oh, congratulations, you're a partner, I, that came out of the blue. That's not it at all. But but you have to land, you have to wind up in a practice where there's there are opportunities, where there's growth, where where the people already in the practice are supportive, where the firm is supportive of the practice. So many things have to align that you couldn't possibly see from outside, right? If you're if you're trying to evaluate a practice from the outside, I think it's very it's hard to do that, but it's to the extent that there are things about Foley, and there are, I got incredibly high touch mentoring from the very beginning, working directly with senior partners who had client relationships on day one. I was talking to clients, scared out of my mind within the first year. And it was a real, the only way to, I think the only way to learn how to do it is to jump in and do it. And, and to do as much of it and as, as broad a spectrum of it as you can, as quickly as you can, and to look for, I was very fortunate. That was exactly what happened. But I was also fortunate that all of the other associates left voluntarily. So all of the people who would have been ahead of me over the last 10 years exited the firm, and I had nothing to do with it. I wish I had. <laughs> last man standing. <laughs> no. only, only man or woman. Or, or person standing, actually, for a short period, I was the only associate in the insurance practice, which was the worst, the most stressful, most challenging eight or nine months of my life. Um, I don't recommend that to anyone. Don't be the only associate working for six partners. It's not a good, it's not a good, li- good way to live. But having survived it, it was a the most professional growth I ever did. Oh, I can imagine over a nine-month period, because there wasn't a, there was no other option. Or at least there was no other option for someone as stubborn as I am. Like, <laughs> well, I'm going to do this, and it, it never crossed my mind I wasn't going to do it. And then you come out the the back end of it, and you've learned so much, so much, and you've had so many experiences, and you've worked so closely with people that you've built the relationships you need for someone to go to bat for you. When yeah. the question is, who's the next partner? 
who's getting promoted to senior counsel, who's getting promoted to partner. The, there were people who knew me as well as anyone I'm not related to and who, who trusted me and who went to bat for me in a way that maybe you don't always get. There's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. It's just jam-packed, so I won't even try to reflect it all, but I, I appreciate all those remarks. And as we as we wind down, I have two last questions, and we'll see where this takes us. But one, is there anything just in general that you wanted to hit on that we haven't talked about before we do wrap up? And then after that, what what is your advice? I think you've actually given a lot of advice, but what's your general advice to somebody contemplating a legal career or to that junior lawyer or that law student? Yeah. I actually really wanted to talk about the experience of being the only out LGBT lawyer in an office. Yes, let's talk about that. A thing that happened, and for we we may not have a lot of time, but I also don't have a lot of story about that. Mm-hmm. With the caveat that that I read a cis white male, and so in in passing, pun intended, in the hallway, if you didn't know who I was, it wouldn't necessarily jump out at you. But it's it's. If you if you've talked to me for more than ten minutes, you would know it was a little intimidating, honestly, right? So so I, I don't want to undersell how intimidating it is to come into a two hundred person office and say, oh well, I this is not what the odds would predict, right? This is not what the demographics mm-hmm. would suggest is the number. As you said, the only yeah, with the, the number one for yes. I'm not the one anymore. I haven't been the one in a very long time, but I was at the time. And and I think I am the first openly LGBT partner in the Milwaukee office ever. And I'm hopeful that that won't last either. And we have lots of places, lots of opportunities to fix that, uh, hopefully very soon. That has been a, that's a total non-issue. But when I started, it was, I wasn't nervous about it, but it was always in the back of my mind that that this was a thing that maybe there was a reason that there were no other LGBT people where I was. Now, again, I didn't have any other options. I didn't have a summer associate gig in New York where I would not have been the only LGBT lawyer. I didn't have a summer associate offer in Chicago or San Francisco. You know, like it's this job or nothing. And that's the easiest choice there is when you're Mm -hmm. in law school. That's right. But what I realized actually is that there was a reason I was the only LGBT lawyer and it wasn't Foley and it wasn't the people in the office. It was, I think this very seriously, the fact that it was Milwaukee, Wisconsin and not somewhere else. Because I would not have been the only out lawyer in any of Foley's other large offices at the time or in most other large law firms in large cities. It is that the quality of lawyer that we want to hire at Foley in every office is the kind of person, kind of law student, who should have a lot of options. And you know, other than in the Great Recession years, I think they probably do. We're, we're not the only firm that people were thinking about summering at Foley could choose. You know. I think m- many of them got a lot of offers. And when when you're looking at, when you're thinking about LGBT 20-somethings who are in law school yep, and, and the community and the LGBT community in a given city and who have the who have the whole world as their oyster. Uh-huh. Did they go to law school to move to a second-tier Midwestern city? Did they go to law school to go to Cincinnati or Milwaukee or Cleveland? And most of them didn't, right? Most of my my LGBT friends in law school wound up in the sort of places you'd expect. You go, oh, where are they going to go? New York, Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, and and I can't blame them for that. But uh, but it, what I realized was that it, the reason I was the only one is because for a lot of years before me, those folks had a ton of choices. They had, you know. Six, seven, ten, twelve offers—the like legendary pre-recession offer rates. If you could, you could choose to say, like, not only do I want to work in in New York, but I want my office to be in Midtown or instead of Lower Manhattan. People had that kind of flexibility. The sorts of people we were we were trying to hire here, and and so, you know, I don't have any stories about negative experiences 
with clients, with colleagues in Milwaukee. I've, I've, I've had no, there are no horror stories, but it's, and since then, right, there have been probably a dozen LGBT people in and out of the Milwaukee office. There's eight of us right now, just in Milwaukee, which is amazing. And I hope that that's a sign that people have figured out that there's more to life, like more to gay life than five big cities on the coasts, plus Chicago. Well, and I appreciate you reflecting that because I think your inquiry and whether it be for those who are the member of the LGBTQ community or other, you know, underrepresented communities within a large law firm, you can look and be like, why isn't there this many of X group or why am I the only? And depending on, like you said, the the location, um, that can explain it. It doesn't necessarily indicate that there's something nefarious going on there. You know, that being said, we also have a lot of work to do. Don't, you know, I say this as director of diversity and inclusion, but that, that and I, for you, I was going to call it your willingness, but like you said, I needed a job. So I was going to go here and figure this out and pleasantly, you know, happy to see that that was the case. But also as someone who grew up in Milwaukee, I've returned, I'd say about once a year for the past many years, but I was in Milwaukee before the pandemic for, as a part of the LGBTQ affinity groups. That's where I first met you, the um, pride night at the Bucks game. And I do remember thinking, wow, Milwaukee in general, you've come a long way because they decked out Serve Forum. And it seemed that they celebrated the LGBTQ community in a way they certainly wouldn't have when I was, say, in high school. So I think there also has been a much more progressive community built in that area, which is also a part of it. And you saw, and so here's a reference for the children, because you were at that event, you saw a now very like world-famous drag queen who was Milwaukee famous at the time, uh, Jada Essence Hall, who won the last season of Drag Race, who is who lives in West Allis? That's the best. And day. also, so I who filmed so and you can tell if you're from Milwaukee or you live in Milwaukee. So so they the finale of that season was during quarantine, right? It was like May of last year, and so the three finalists, including this queen of Milwaukee, had to film in their houses, like their their like final lip sync routines. And Jada Essence Hall is in this bungalow, it, like I think in the '60s in West Allis, and it, I'm like everyone I know has a living room that looks just like that in Milwaukee. It's just such a you would have recognized it. You just I go, didn't. Oh. So I didn't watch that season. I will have to now. But I'm so glad you mentioned that because at the game itself, I didn't watch the game at all. I often joke I'm not really a sports person. The only time my eyes were on the court was for that drag show at halftime. And, Just, uh, yes. And she, so I think the Bucks paid for some costumes for the drag queens involved. And if you'd seen it at Pride Night, she wore it again on Drag Race. Really? That green and gold thing. Yeah. I do remember that. That's yeah. amazing. That's so I, great. I lost my mind. And I think it was that right at so the beginning great. of quarantine. So we were all completely, we'd all gone crazy. Yep. Yep. And that is, I'm like, wait a minute. I saw that at a basketball game once. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So as we do, as we do wrap it up, give me your advice. Give me your advice to somebody contemplating nav- navigating a legal career or whoever you want to style the advice to. What are your thoughts? So, so it's only advice about how to, how to do it in a big law firm because I don't know anything else. Right. And the most, so the one piece of advice, the thing that is the most important as a new, like, thinking about starting as an associate is how closely am I going to work with partners and clients? How leveraged is the the group and the firm that I'm looking at joining? And that that should be the the guiding principle, right? What, how do I look at a situation and say, this is a situation where I'm going to be professionally successful, where I'm going to learn how to do this very challenging very idiosyncratic job and where am I the most likely to be able to build a really rewarding long career in the law, whether it's at a, law, at a firm or not, is it the place where you're going to get the most direct partner and client contact? You're going to get the largest pieces of projects. You're going to have the longest relationships with people and with clients and with ideas. And and so if you are choosing between multiple places or multiple situations, I would suggest, and and this is rebounds to the benefit of Foley, so Alexis can tell management I said nice things, 
look for a place where you're, and you can tell how many associates are there, how many partners are there. What is the ratio between partners and associates? It's different at large law firms that otherwise look very similar. And that's a really telling and really important difference that a firm can't hide from you, right? You get the NALP pages and you can figure it out and they can't, no one can blow smoke and no one can pull the wool over your eyes. Those numbers are what those numbers are. And so that like pay attention to that because it's the most important choice you can make for your career. If your career is headed to a big law firm is to get yourself in a place where you are, where you're likely to be a critical team member and, and to be one-on-one with partners and one-on-one with clients soon and often. That is some sage advice about prioritizing your training and your experience. And Morgan, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. If somebody has questions and wants to reach out, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, see my out-of-date headshot. That is not what my hair looks like. And I don't wear those glasses anymore. But we're not getting new headshots during COVID. I have to lose a little COVID weight and then find a photographer uh, before I update that. Perfect. But, so they uh, can see that and they can email you. <laughs> find me on, on our website. Find me on LinkedIn. Laugh a little bit about the picture and shoot me an email or give me a call. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Morgan. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, This podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 